Hey, it's Nathan. Sean's right here with me as well. We want to welcome you back to the 13-week Bible. This is season two, and we're in episode number five in our weekly reading preview. We're hoping you're enjoying the reading through the Bible in just 13 weeks. By the way, if you're just dropping in, we'd encourage you to start with episode one and follow along. Today, we're previewing the rest of 1 Samuel, beginning with chapter 16. We'll also preview 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and on through 2 Kings chapter 15. Sean, how's the reading? My reading is going very well, Nathan. I am, I think, one day behind, but nice. I'm... Uh, I'm, I feel like I'm keeping pace pretty well. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, but not, not only that, I'm enjoying it. And as we've talked about, getting a lot out of it. And uh, really, you know, it, it, as I'm reading, no doubt as you are doing, Nathan, I'm making notes of little questions and stories that I want to come back to, you know, in the future. But, you know, I, I, I keep adding page after page to my notes because, you know, we can't slow down and tackle all these things right now, but I don't want to forget about them. Yep. And so that's a great reminder as you're reading. That's the best thing to do. There's another way you can do it. I use the voice record option on my iPhone and uh, my Apple watch when the buffer's not full, just to throw in voice notes. So I can do that while I'm driving, um, at least with my watch. Uh, you can, maybe that's not something I'd recommend, but anyway, uh, that voice note, if you're sitting down or even don't want to pull out the pen or don't want to pull out your phone to make a note, you can always use those voice notes. And uh, in fact, I was just reviewing a couple of them on my way in this morning. Again, that's so helpful to keep those notes. You'll find again that if you don't slow down, you're going to get some great ideas. And some of those ideas you just don't get if you slow down. So there's that mix. Again, we're talking about a habit of fast big picture reading that is um, accompanied by slower, reflective, deeper study. So we're definitely not here saying just spend all your time skimming. Uh, this 13 weeks is a great time to skim and uh, get the big picture, but then in between be planning, um, you know, on the months in between, if you've got time in the days in between, certainly you can slow down um, but thanks, Sean. That's a great reminder of the value of the big picture. Oh, one of the, yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention is um, I, I was just reminded recently because I've had some challenges keeping up with the reading is if you come at the text with um, even the desire sort of uh, or the focus of looking at like skimming through and just picking out bits of the story, even if you go through a Bible that has like headings and just take, you know, set your timer, give yourself 60 mm -hmm. minutes and just go through the section. Mm -hmm. Don't focus on reading it. Focus on looking at the connections, the different stories in the section. Um, slow down to pick up details. Uh, it's a different way of sort of previewing the whole chunk that, so I think that's even another method. One you could, where you're actually reading through the other one where you're not focused on reading, but you're focused on sort of reflecting on the whole chunk together of sort of a day's reading that can be very helpful. And I was just reminded of that this time as I've been sort of looking at keeping up and processing and, and just being reminded that sometimes 
attacking the text or approaching the text in a different way besides sort of the reading approach can be very helpful again in picking up the big picture, the big linkages. Yeah, I think that's good. It's an important reminder and it's an important permission because I don't know about you, Nathan, but I'm the type of person who I don't say I've read a book unless I've read every word in it. So I feel like I'm cheating. <laughs> right. I feel like I'm cheating when I don't read every single word. But again, as we've said before, the purpose of this sort of exercise is to not get every little blade of grass counted, yep. but to see the big picture. Thank you. I love that word permission. And I just, I do want to <laughs> encourage as a listener to, to, give yourself permission to accept our permission that you're here to get the big picture, whatever that looks like. If it looks like um, skimming and jumping around, go for it. That's the purpose of this reading. It's not to say, I checked the box, I read it. It's to see the big picture. You might mm -hmm. come at this with a specific thing. You may come at the text and say, this time as I read through, I want to focus on uh, let's say there's a big theme of land. Maybe this time you go through and you just want to focus on land. So just be skimming the text, looking for every place where land sort of comes into the conversation, whether that's the Abraham story, I'll give you this land, whether that's the conquest story of Joshua as they conquered the land, whether that's the, the piece where the land will spit you out if you um, violate the covenant. So you're looking for a thing. So then you're skipping lots of stuff to, to dial into that specific theme. And uh, so that's another way to, to go at it thematically. Again, you're still going through the whole text. You're still following the daily reading as your focus point for the day, your focus section. But you're drilling in on, these on, on a specific theme. Could be covenant, could be all kinds of things. Again, if you plan to read it through more than once, you, that really helps take the pressure off to say, okay, I can do this this time. Next time I can do something else. Again, if you plan to make it a part of your scripture rhythm. All right. I want to do a quick review. Um, last time we were in Deuteronomy 8 to the end of Deuteronomy, uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and into 1 Samuel uh, through 15. You know, Sean, as I was looking back on... Um, the text, I realized there's three big characters in 1 Samuel. There's the namesake character, Samuel. Then there's the next big character, Saul, and the next big character, David. That was kind of an aha moment that I hadn't really thought about. It's just the, the book is basically those three characters and their interaction. That's pretty much the entire story of the book. Mm, that's a good observation. It's not something I noticed, but I appreciate you pointing that out. I mean, obviously, um, it, I know that they're in there, but yeah, I didn't right. notice that pattern. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then Joshua, the conquest of Canaan, the promised land, Judges, really messy book um, as the people of Israel are just going back and forth between faithfulness. Then we came to Ruth, um, great story of a non-Israelite embracing the God of heaven. And then 1 Samuel brings us into the monarchical period of Israel which is where we find ourselves for the entire week ahead as we move through the rest of 1 Samuel, which is 16 through 31, recounting the rise of Israel's most famous King David and the tragic fall of Israel's first King Saul. Then we move to 2 Samuel, which is entirely devoted to the reign of David with all its triumph and tragedy. That's followed by 1 Kings which recounts the rise of Solomon, Israel's wisest king, then follows the dividing of the kingdom in the early days of his son Rehoboam's 
foolish reign. The rest of the book follows the two kingdoms and their kings with a focus on the kingdom of Israel. Also included is the inspiring story of the Israelite prophet Elijah. Second Kings continues to track the two kingdoms. It also recounts the exciting story of Elijah's prophetic successor, Elisha. This section brings us into the tragic final days of the kingdom of Israel. That's the big overview. Let's slow down, Sean. What would you mm. say is sort of your big focus in the last half of First Samuel? Well, you know, it's quite interesting because uh, something I had never noticed before, um, obviously I kind of understood it from later in Israel's history taking place, but really from the beginning, there is this rivalry between the 10 tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. Yes. And it's actually present right from the beginning of, well, Saul's reign, but especially it becomes pronounced after Saul. Yep. When I had never, I don't think I'd ever noticed this before. Technically, David was not the second king of Israel. Yes, that's you know, something had, we, that really stuck out to me this time too. Yeah, keep going. I, I was noticing yeah, yeah. the same stuff. Yeah, no, um, you know, lots of times when we do these little trivia games, like who's the second king of Israel or who's the third king of Israel? It's like David and then Solomon. No, actually, Ishbosheth, <laughs> right. Saul's son, was originally the king of Israel, and Judah accepted David, but it took a couple years for the rest of Israel to embrace David. And I find that to be interesting because we do see that divide that develops. I mean, even when we get to Solomon, um, Israel is like, we're not really sure we like Solomon and mm -hmm. he taxes us too much. And then it, then it comes up with Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And, and so there, there was this division sort of right from the very beginning between those two different sections of what we often call Israel. Um, and of course, you know, it definitely gets distinguished after Solomon between the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. But right from the very beginning, the uh, you know, Samuel is setting us up to see that there's this conflict mm -hmm. and this division and this rivalry that takes place between these two these two uh, parts of God's God's people. So, I mean, that's something that jumped out at me. That's an initial thought. There's obviously so much more, but that's something that I had never really noticed before. That's such a great observation. I think those are the big pieces that really sort of give value to the purpose of this podcast is to highlight those things as you're reading this week, then you can just be keeping your eye open. Um, again, I was fascinating and I'm, I, I've read it through before, but just really fascinated to see, just to notice. It really struck me the, the fact that David was not the king that followed Saul Except mm -hmm. for Judah. I mean, for Judah, that, that was true, mm -hmm. but not for, I think it's seven and a half years, if I remember right, between yeah, I was kind of the full transition was like seven and a half yeah. years. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because uh, I did, I think, yeah, it was 33 years total that he reigned over all of Israel. And then yeah. Yeah, I think it was seven where it was just Judah. So, yeah. Now, obviously, you know, in in Jewish thinking, the big 
maybe the big three, might we say, heroes are Abraham, Moses, David. So mm. David is David is is extremely pivotal Huge. and important in in their understanding, and certainly the the Hebrew Bible and Bible's understanding. Um, we talked about this a little bit last week, I think, where it doesn't. I don't remember exactly where it said um, in scripture, and I'm reading a different version, so it's hard for me to use the classic language. But you know, David was a man after God's mm. own heart. And, you know, I'm trying to pick up, you know, what in the story makes him so. And as I, I sort of touched on last week, I do think it was because of his singular devotion to the monotheistic mm. God. You know, he certainly had other problems, you know, adultery and murder and all this other stuff. But he kept coming back to, um, you know, the singular worship of, of God. I think also... One theme that is picked up as well through David's life is that over and over again, and it's like the other characters in the story, they are constantly surprised by this and you think they know, but he is not happy when his enemies die and are killed. Yes. <laughs> like oh, people, that's a great people, observation. You know, whether it's Saul or Ishbosheth or Absalom. Yeah. You know, these people come to him with this report of, hey, yay, your enemies have, have you know, been killed. And, like, basically, he often has those people who report this news, <laughs> right. he has them killed and says, yeah. like, what makes, you think, what makes you think that I would be happy about my enemies, you right. know, being killed? And so it's, it just shows, I think it's a, I think it's a picture into God's heart where, yeah. you know, the you know the the great statement of Jesus father forgive them for they know mm -hmm. not what they do he has a heart of love mm -hmm. for his rivals for his enemies not a heart of hatred and you know despising them Sean I think we could really sit on this for a while in fact I think as a reader as you're reading this week just really keep your eyes open I I would in my mind I'm thinking that factor is a major reason why God says he's a man after my own heart. Because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you do, you have it. And I have in my notes, just the note that twice Saul was in David's hand. So there's this, mm -hmm. cat, this mm -hmm. cat and mouse game. Well, it's not a game for David or Saul, <laughs> I guess, but just this awful cat and mouse where David's the anointed. Saul sees that God is with David Saul becomes this raging, jealous, um, basically, mm. I don't know if maniac is the right name, but he really loses it, um, mm -hmm. tries to kill David more than once. He chases David through the, the bush um, twice. In fact, David escapes to the Philistines the first time he freaks out and pretends to be a crazy man and so that he saves his hide. <laughs> the second time he actually moves in. And uh, mm -hmm. interestingly, is running raids on Philistine villages from within the Philistine territory. So that's an interesting <laughs> section of the story. But here's the piece I want to mention. Twice, David and Saul are so close that David and, and David is literally within actual physical striking distance. One time he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. I'm forgetting what he did the other time. Both times, if mm -hmm. I'm remembering right, he's encouraged by his faithful men to do something, mm -hmm. to take the life mm -hmm. of the king. And both times David's like, no. In fact, when he takes the corner of Saul's garment, I think that's the cave episode. Saul's 
using mm -hmm. the restroom in a cave. David's men are back mm -hmm. deeper in the cave. David cuts a piece of Saul's robe while he's using the restroom. And the Bible says his conscience was smitten. So sure, David, David um, has some really dark moments, but he has mm -hmm. this, he has this, this heart for God. And when he realizes he's messed up, he's very quick to say, whoa, oh man, I'm so sorry. He's very quick to correct mm -hmm. course. Um, mm -hmm. And I just, that for me seems to be like this heart that is like God is this heart that can be moved to correction and mm -hmm. is moved by love for enemy in ways that don't seem to show up as much in the story of other kings. Mm -hmm. Well, I think precisely because of that reason and others as well, but because of that, that another theme that emerges throughout the narrative as as we continue to go through it is that, you know, God favors future kings because of the covenant he made with David. You know, he promised that he would have a son on the throne. And so because of God's love for and covenant he made with David, he shows favor to subsequent kings and future generations, um, just, uh, again, echoing God honoring the faithfulness of David and um, placing his favor upon his descendants. That's another great tag team moment because I was thinking about the same thing as you were talking earlier. Um, it does. You read through the entire, I don't know if it's as much the Israel story as the, the kingdom of Israel story, kind of the Northern kingdom as much yeah. as the Judah story, but over and over and over mm -hmm. again, you do just watch for it because it does come up where God's like, yeah, I was going to just sort of turn my back on things and let you fall, but I can't because yeah. my servant David was so faithful. I have to honor mm. his legacy. Uh, man, I, you know, there's a lot in the story. This is a, a <laughs> relational book, right? And mm -hmm. there's these moments mm -hmm. where that just comes out really clear. Um, mm -hmm. Invite well, us I, to I reflect. Think... Yeah, go ahead. No, I th and I don't know how to develop this idea fully, but it speaks ultimately and it raises questions about God's commitment to covenant, right? Mm -hmm. Like he is, he is treating future generations with favor because he is duty bound mm -hmm. to honor his covenant he made with David. And so that, I mean, that raises all sorts of theological questions in and of itself, which are very interesting, but you know, and, and the text doesn't, give us a theological reflection on why God has to, you know, keep his covenant. Um, but it's just, it's an, it's an interesting part of the story where mm -hmm. God, because he must remain faithful to the promises he makes yeah. is on the hook, so to speak, to treat future generations with kindness and favor because of the covenant he made with David. Mm-hmm. So a friend of ours, um, Ty, uses and, and, mm -hmm. and a couple other friends use this idea that the Old Testament is promises made, the New Testament promises kept. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's mm -hmm. a, that theme of promise and covenant is very powerful. In fact, the idea mm -hmm. of love in the biblical narrative is very intertwined and inseparable from the idea of faithfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, covenant and so, faithfulness. Yeah. And certainly, you know, Judah, as we're going to learn, 
is taken into captivity. And so you'd say, well, did God keep his covenant? Um, you know, did he, you know, did he remain faithful? But I mean, that's a whole other discussion. But the point is, ultimately, who's sitting on the throne of David when it's all said and done, mm-hmm. right? Jesus. He is yep. the son of David, the great fulfillment of the covenant. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And again, it's a story, and we're looking at the twists and turns of the story. One of the things I noticed this week, um, and and maybe you can give me some feedback, is that Scripture is the telling of the story as the prophets could see it. Um, they didn't mm. necessarily have sort of this grand, uh, uh, you might say, Bible commentary insight into the story. They were firsthand observers. There were times where God gave them specific insight. There were other times when the, the prophet was simply um, operating in the moment in that time in history speaking to what was happening in the unfolding story. And as Paul says, we see through a glass darkly, they were Mm -hmm. speaking to a limited understanding, a limited experience, illuminating that peace as God continues to mature and unveil to mature the people, but also to unveil an increasing with increasing clarity over generations, his own story. Mm -hmm. So there mm-hmm. is a sense in which, and you'll see it between the Kings and the Chronicles, that the authors look at the same history with a little different lens. We'll touch on that when we get to the Chronicles, but mm-hmm. because, again, the prophets are observing with, uh, again, sort of like that game map. If you've played, you know, whether it's Minecraft or some of these map-based video games that um, will limit your vision, sort of the map is mm-hmm. only seen as far as you've explored. And the prophets are kind of operating in that. Mm-hmm. There's sometimes where God gives mm-hmm. them insight into regions of the map beyond their explored mm-hmm. territory, but often their view is, is largely confined to what is visible, what is known within the storyline as God is step-by-step unfolding himself. I don't know mm-hmm. what you think about that, Sean. But No, I think that's right. I think, you know, sometimes, at least I do, I get the get to thinking that a prophet is basically omniscient like mm-hmm. they know everything like they 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 are given the full picture they know more than you know anyone in their time or future times knows as though like somebody living in you know 800 BC knows more than we do now right, right. um and i i don't i i certainly think there are occasions like you yeah. sort of said where they are given and I don't want to use the term supernatural because, of course, they're given supernatural. But I mean, even maybe super supernatural mm-hmm. knowledge where they're they're all knowing. But they probably merely maybe were one or two steps ahead of the mm-hmm. rest of the people out there, and they weren't a hundred steps ahead of people. Um, I think if they were, they you know the information that they would have access to would be un un not not understandable mm. um by by their contemporaries yeah so again it's like you know it's like trying to teach college calculus to a first grader no right. the person has to teach be a little ahead of yeah. the students not completely ahead of the students otherwise it's too confusing so right yeah. and i think too remembering that god is also working within the intelligence 
and perceptive capacity of the prophet. You mm-hmm. know, you look at Paul's writings yeah. in the New Testament, very deep and articulate. You look at other writings like John's simpler. Um, so God is also working within the parameters of the human being. There's not like this superhuman piece. Um, certainly mm-hmm. we have supernatural moments, but God is not overstepping the bounds of the prophet's intelligence and capacity um, mm-hmm. as a general rule. We should probably keep moving. Um, yeah. The sad part, you'll follow the end of the story in 1 Samuel finds Saul and, and his sons killed, Saul dying by suicide, tragically. At mm. least that's that's what the record indicates. Now, I'm not sure if that's the end of, if 1 Samuel says that, or if that's an insight that comes from Chronicles, because um, I've read Yeah, there both. seems to be a little ambig- ambiguity. Yeah, I'm trying to remember which says what, because I do know one of them like, wait a minute, did he kill himself? Did he not kill himself? Right. Did somebody else do it? That, yeah. Because the Amalekite in 2 Samuel's like, yeah. hey, I came on Saul and he was yeah. about to die and I killed him. And, and David's like, uh, like Sean <laughs> mentioned, he said, you think that was a good thing? Yeah. <laughs> and has him executed. You think executed. I'd be happy? Right. Yeah. So we're in 2 Samuel now. And I, I think one of the pieces that I would just slow down for is the mourning of, of, of David for Saul and Jonathan. There's uh, this, this mm. beautiful prayer uh, where, where David just mourns deeply for Saul and very affectionate, not just about Jonathan. We know Jonathan and David have this deep affection for each other, but David expresses deep affection and respect for Saul. And this is the Saul that tried to kill him multiple times where where David says, like, how are the mighty fallen? How did this happen to you, Saul? Just this deep, like this ability to grieve his the death of his um, oppressor as if his oppressor was a good and righteous man. Just an incredible, mm. incredible mm. way of seeing past his own pain and hurt. Um, I think that's forgiveness. Is that what that's called? Something like that. <laughs> yeah uh and then we talked about cool. the short reign of the and that's we sort of got ahead of the story second samuels where we find the reign of Ishbosheth, seven and a half years where david is king of judah and then um where abner gets frustrated with the um i think gets frustrated with Ishbosheth, and he's like if David is not, if I don't make David king, may tragedy happen to me. He's like, just, mm-hmm. just like, I'm going for it. And that was the transition mm-hmm. from um, the divided kingdom in this case of Judah and Israel, kind of the early division being repaired by Saul's general. You got anything mm-hmm. on this part? No, I, I mean, I just echoing, and I kind of touched on it before, but not only David's lament of Saul's death, but then again, later on with Absalom, you know, he's my son, my son, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, he's just absolutely torn. And and Absalom was actively trying to overtake his father's kingdom to the point where David has to leave Jerusalem as a way to, you know, protect himself. And so again, that heart of, of love and forgiveness and, Grace is just overwhelming in the mm-hmm. story of David. And we find ourselves in, in that story. We find um, one of Saul's relatives is 
throwing stones and rocks at the procession, specifically at David as they're leaving the city, mm, and just yeah. calling down curses. You know, you're you're an evil king, and this is what you deserve for stepping in and taking over from the family of Saul. And 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 David's men are like, listen, we can take this guy out. Just just let us just give us the word, and we'll kill him, and you'll be done. And so, and David's like, no. Maybe this mm-hmm. is what I deserve. It's just this humble kind of, mm-hmm. he, he mm-hmm. has the humility not only to forgive his enemy, but in the, at this difficult time in the story to say, you know, maybe this is what I deserve. And he just kind of bent, bows his head and accepts this mistreatment when he could have just easily given the word a snap of his fingers. There's plenty of stories to, to, to affirm the loyalty and courage of David's men, they would have had that guy beheaded in, in seconds. And yet David mm-hmm. is just humble to say, yeah, I just, again, this well, beautiful king, this beautiful character, I should say. Along those lines, um, you know, one of the most beautiful stories in in all of scripture to me, and it comes up in this, this section, is, you know, the story of Mephibosheth. Mm-hmm. Where, where you know, um, Jonathan's son, lame in his feet, is is discovered, and you know, David's like, is there anyone in Jonathan's family that I that is still alive that I can show kindness to? It's like mm-hmm. he has to like he has to express his kindness, his devotion, his his faithfulness. He's like, can you find somebody for me? And yeah. they you know they bring Mephibosheth in, and it says that he eats that. David's table for the rest of his life. And it's just like such a beautiful mm-hmm. picture of the covenant faithfulness of God and God's grace and mercy. And this man, Mephibosheth, had absolutely no value because of his physical condition. He yeah. couldn't produce anything. He wasn't, you know, somebody who was going to be of much use to David. But he's like, I just want to show him, show him kindness. That's all I want to do. Yeah. And I mean, we don't do much application in this, but if that isn't a beautiful picture of the gospel of we do not have much use to God, so to speak, but he wants to show us kindness anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not the val it's not the usefulness of our lives that God values. It's the fact that we are his children and he just wants to shower us with grace. Yeah, yeah. And I I just highlight yeah, to to pay attention to how God works to form David's heart. We're going to get to the Psalms, which David did not write all of them. Uh, This is quite a, it's a few weeks down the road, but we're going to come to the Psalms. And the Psalms are this window again into God's forming work in David's life. And I mention that because we have the Bathsheba episode. David is, Mm -hmm. stays home from battle and ends up having this affair that, involves a murder and yet we've just been talking about how david has a has a heart like god's heart obviously in this moment that's not the case but it's worth noting that in this messy mix god is maturing somebody and just gives me courage and hope to say you know in my mess i am not all that i can be but I'm also not abandoned and forgotten by God. He's forming me in the, mm. the day-to-day space, and yep, I'm going to blow it. And, and yet God is not going to turn his back on me. If I'm willing to be formed, 
God's going to engage in that forming process. And I think David mm-hmm. is just a mm-hmm. great example of how God is forming him through the ups and downs. I mean, he makes a huge mistake at the end of 2 Samuel with numbering Israel, which we'll come back mm-hmm. to in, in the Chronicles. Um, so, could, yeah, go ahead. Could I insert, I don't want to throw a, a wrench into the discussion, but I think it's an interesting episode with Bathsheba and what you're just bringing up because, and I don't remember exactly where it is said, but according to the narrative, it seems like the sin of David here was not the fact that he had, now hear me out on this, was not the fact that he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's the fact that he had Uriah killed. Hmm. And that raises a whole, again, to me, they're both sins, but the narrative itself expresses the concern over Uriah's murder. Mm -hmm. And it just raises, I think, some exegetical, maybe theological questions, and maybe just critical questions about what this goes back to what you were saying about the biblical writers and prophets Hmm. only seeing some of the picture Mm -hmm. because i don't know at that stage if they you know women were not valued as much Mm -hmm. um this was more a sin against uriah than against bathsheba Mm -hmm. um so anyway it, it just i think it speaks to the contextual nature of the of the scriptural narrative because it doesn't, it's not terribly scandalized that David did this. I mean, for goodness sake, David and Solomon and all these Kings had how many wives and concubines. So they're not that scandalized by stuff like this. They're scandalized by a man having his property taken though. So anyway, that that's just, again, that's a little wrench in the discussion, but anyway, I don't know what you think, Nathan. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that came to mind is, is, um, we don't really get the chance to see how God would have responded to that because, mm-hmm. um, because of the murder involved, that's kind of a, you know, you can't really repair a murder. So, you know, I wonder if God is addressing the, the biggest thing and let's just mm. focus in on what we've got to address this. This is, this is the part that this is the part where David strays the farthest. So we're going to deal mm-hmm. with that someday down the mm-hmm. line. We'll start dealing with, marital faithfulness and and yeah. one wife it's etc but this is really egregious that he uses you know again one an affair you could recover the husband can recover like that can be repaired a death cannot be repaired so maybe mm-hmm. that's part of yeah. what's in the story well i do think there's little hints of it in in the story about trying to prepare the soil for uh, a more robust understanding of how women should be valued and treated. Mm. Um, I just, I just had a, um, someone share this last week about how she was reading a book on Bathsheba and how they pointed out that Bathsheba repented of her sin and so forth. And I'm thinking the text doesn't say anything about Mm. Bathsheba repenting of her sin. (laughs) Like there's nothing in there that says it. And quite frankly, I don't think she had anything to repent over mm. because she the the story seems to even though again it doesn't come right out and and 
express concern about that part of the story. Mm -hmm. There are little hints that she was she was acted upon and not, mm -hmm. you know, somebody who was culpable for the situation. So anyway, yeah. again, sorry yeah. to take us on a little detour. No, it's good. That's part of what we do. So Second Samuel 22 is uh, actually found also in Psalm, 19, Psalm 18, excuse me, and a beautiful, beautiful psalm to take note of, beautiful mm. prayer to take note of. There's intrigue in David's house, Amnon and Tamar, Absalom, later Adonijah. So it's messy business. Um, yeah, mm. so we'll come back to the numbering of Israel in Second Chronicles, but I, I want you to put mm. your finger there. Second Samuel um, and Second Chronicles tell the same story with different focal points. And this mm -hmm. is another great reminder that the, the different angles represented by the different prophetic books are super insightful. So you're going to find that in pieces of 2 Samuel and the Chronicles. You're going to find that in Kings and Chronicles, that the authors of each book have a different sort of retelling, a different perspective on some events, and that can be very insightful. So if you trip over a story in one book, be open to see that that same story may be told from a different angle in another book that helps to clarify mm -hmm. the story. And sometimes one of them says, hey, this is a great king. And the other one says, this is a bad king. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. <laughs> so then we come to 1 Kings, begins with Adonijah versus Solomon. Adonijah is a son of David as well as Solomon. Um, then, oh, you know what? One thing to mention in 2 Samuel is just noting the great desire of David to bring the ark back. We won't talk more mm. about that, but just yeah. following that story of David longing to build a temple and longing to center the ark in the, in the worship um, of the Hebrew people. The mm -hmm. ark had apparently been largely neglected during Saul's reign. So that's a little piece for you to pay attention to as you read through. So anyway, back to 1 Kings. David was not um, permitted to build the temple. That's another conversation to keep your eye on as you uh, look at the story of David in 2 Samuel as well as later in the Chronicles. But Solomon gets to build the temple. So there's a big piece of kings that is devoted to the construction of the temple. First Kings, what do you want to bring out from First Kings, Sean? Well, you know, just pointing out the name Solomon itself means peace. And, mm. you know, this is a time of great peace mm -hmm. that Solomon uh, enjoyed and promoted. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. We've always heard that Solomon was the wisest man, you know, to ever live. And he asked God for wisdom. Mm -hmm. But the text actually, and I, I like this a little nuance. It doesn't say he asked for wisdom, at least. I don't think First Kings translates it this way. Um, it says that he prayed to God for an understanding heart, mm. which I think is a little different than than, than wisdom. Um, it speaks more maybe to a more holistic mm -hmm. approach to being able to, to discern the you know the realities of human life. Um, but yeah, then it then it you know the the book very intentionally to demonstrate that understanding heart and that wisdom. So no sooner does it 
say that, then the story of the, the two moms, you know, is mm-hmm. presented over the child that, that is, you know, one dies and the other is, um, you know, still alive. And it's very clearly trying to then present an anecdote that demonstrates just how understanding and wise Solomon was. So in many ways, you know, the life and rule of Solomon is a story of the best of times and the worst of times. And, you know, it's all wrapped up into one person where he has all this wealth, he has all this wisdom, he has all this peace, and yet his heart turns to other Mm -hmm. gods. Um, And, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes uh, kind of is born out of that experience Mm -hmm. where he basically says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. He comes to the end of his life to realize just how vain all of the riches Mm. and wealth and fame was um so it ends on a good note on some levels but it goes through many twists and turns that could have been avoided if solomon had not had his heart turned to other gods yep so i'm thinking about another piece um that's sort of interesting david kind of establishes israel there's joshua joshua leads the people in then there's that tumultuous time in the judges then there's the rise of the kings. And then there's David, who in his reign, you get this very clear sense that David establishes the kingdom. Like it really comes to settle in as a meaningful kingdom with true authority and true power among the surrounding nations. And that sets the table, in a sense, sets the stage for the people of Israel to be at rest and focus in on the establishment of the worship of God in at another level. So it's almost like David's reign prepares the way for a, the peaceful reign of Solomon, who then in his peaceful reign establishes, builds the temple and centralizes mm-hmm. in a magnificent way, the worship of God. The tragedy is, is as we move through the story, like here, Solomon. David sets the sets the stage. Solomon builds the temple, centers the Hebrew worship again, and then everything falls apart. It's just it's really tragic. It's almost like Israel mm-hmm. was about to enter mm-hmm. into a whole new level of of um, a whole new level of existence of worship and goodness as a nation, and mm-hmm. then Solomon's foolishness. It's kind of a theme here, different kings along the story during the history of of Israel, their choices profoundly shift the trajectory of Israel's history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Solomon's one. Well, I think it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's interesting, you know, picking up on one of those themes of the temple um, is that, you know, David originally, when he gets this idea to go build a temple for God, you know, Nathan, the prophet initially says, yeah, good, go for it. But then he consults with God and then he comes back and God basically says to David, Hey, where'd you get this idea of building a temple? He's like, I never asked anyone to build me a temple. Mm-hmm, He's mm-hmm. like, I don't know where he gets this idea from. Um, he says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, God's like, I'm going to do something better for you. I'm going to build you a house. Mm. And, um, I think what God is actually pointing to is he was pointing to a line of kings. Yeah. yeah and yeah. that would be the house of David. The house of yeah. David is the kings of David, the descendants that came from David's loins. And so 
Um, you know, now obviously God accepts Solomon's work of building a temple, but I don't know, this is a bigger point, I don't know that God originally necessarily wanted a physical space hmm. that people had to come to in order to encounter him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, you know, the later on in the story, Jesus comes and basically says, I'm the temple, yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I am, I am, you know, Solomon's temple is embodied in me. So I think that has all sorts of interesting mm. implications. Um, but anyway, we won't develop those right now. What's well, a great thing to think about um, as, as you read, watching that interaction and just thinking about what's God after here and what is mm. the human being after? It's honorable. Mm-hmm. And yet, mm-hmm. is it falling short in all its grandeur? Is it in some way perhaps falling short of the point? Maybe mm-hmm. maybe being more religious than spiritual. I mean, over mm-hmm. and over again, you get mm-hmm. this picture mm-hmm. that God's not after sacrifices and all this. He says specifically, I'm not really interested in all that stuff. I want your heart. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's, mm-hmm. that's right. part of this conversation. I think so, where God is not looking to have a beautiful physical space per se mm-hmm. he's looking to have a beautiful people who are adorned with his character yeah. of love and yeah. that's you know that's the house he's looking for yeah yeah so one of the characters that comes up in uh, well we'll say two of them well here let's just pause and notice that um, at the end of Solomon's reign this guy Jeroboam he's come into the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, during Solomon's reign, during that dark time where where um, Sean mentioned Solomon just kind of threw his morals to the wind, he actually engaged in human sacrifice. And that was absolutely mm. detestable to God and was um, such a profound violation of the covenant that there was basically no return in the long run. We mm-hmm. kind of see this mm-hmm. as a major shifting, major inflection point in the story of Israel in general. Um, mm-hmm. And after that, it's after that that the kingdom is divided. Jeroboam, um, it's just this, Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, is really a foolish young king. And mm-hmm. he is directly instrumental in the early division that Sean mentioned between the tribe of Judah, tribe of Benjamin, and the rest of Israel. Um, yeah. Rehoboam kind of and clinches that. Mm-hmm. And Jeroboam is like, is pointed to as kind of like the prototypical or archetypal evil king because every king in Israel from then on is like, and he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And um, so, like, he sets them up for that whole slide into utter chaos and debauchery. And, you know, Judah has a good king here and there, mm-hmm. but Israel never, from that point on, after Solomon, starting with Jeroboam, never once has a king that has any redeeming hmm. qualities spoken of like it's just a slide further and further into sin and utter evil and and tragedy yeah and it's set up squarely on the foundation of religious practice Jeroboam Mm -hmm. establishes Mm -hmm. the calf worship and that 
mm-hmm. single act is probably the centerpiece of why Israel mm-hmm. never recovers. So, so I know probably we don't have a lot of time left in this episode, but I do think it's an important launching point to discuss, well, why was God so, we talked about it a little bit last week, but why was God so disturbed by these cultic religious mm. practices? Um, I like, I like how um, the version I'm reading uh, puts it, you know, the term that's often used in kind of traditional translations is the high places. That's, mm-hmm. that's what, what they're called. In my version, the message, it refers to them as sex and religion shrines. Mm. And I think that that maybe gives a little more insight into yeah. what was going on and why they were so disturbing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't simply that God was jealous and say, you know, you need to give me your undivided. He knew that these idolatrous practices were leading into terrible, mm-hmm. tragic behaviors. In addition to what you already mentioned, literal child sacrifice. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. there is no freedom. There is no joy. There is no peace in following after these other gods and, and, and setting up these high, high places, so mm. to speak. So God desperately wanted to protect his people from these tragic behaviors for their own good. Yeah, and the the phrase that comes to mind is morally deforming. Mm, and mm, this so like these that. these idolatrous practices were were morally deforming and mm. that again we've talked about the cause and effect that's fundamentally the issue. It's not that God can't it's not that God has a jealousy problem in mm. the human relationship sense, but that he knows the trajectory of the moral deforming that happens when human beings lose sight of him. I mean, he loves to be in relationship Mm. with us. Like there's definitely more to the story, Mm. but a Mm. piece of Mm. it is simply that he, he is, his heart is broken as he sees human beings deformed into monsters, Mm. sacrificing your own Mm. children. Like this Mm. is, this is unimaginably cruel. Um, and we see it continue. It's interesting that the Bible in 1 Kings 14, as you read, you'll see this language, which comes up more than once, but give Israel up where God is. Mm, Israel comes mm-hmm. to a place where, where they're so bent on evil that God's like, I just have to let you go. I'm going to step mm-hmm, back and mm-hmm. let you just kind of pursue your own thing because you're so committed to it. I'm going to step back out of the picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So 1 Kings 16 records the rise of Samaria. And um, there's a king, really bad king, uh, that, you know, we talked about Jeroboam shifting the course. The next character in Kings that gets a lot of attention, um, probably one of the, maybe the single, the king with the single most attention is Ahab, at least on the mm-hmm. bad kings. And mm-hmm. his counterpart, not a king, is a prophet, Elijah. So during this dark, mm-hmm. dark reign of Ahab, where he's just basically going full speed into evil, there's this foil, and the foil is Elijah the prophet. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any yeah. comments on that uh, first. The no, first I, Kings, but. no, no, I, I think you're right. You know, the Elijah takes up a lot of the attention of 
of first Kings and then into second Kings, you know, transitions to Elisha. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, Elijah, again, not a, you know, he's a man of God, but he has his own weaknesses to work through. He has a kind of a complex about, you know, woe is me and I'm the only one who, Mm -hmm. you know, is is following your ways, um, which is encouraging because it means we don't have to be perfect to be, you know, in partnership with God. But um, yeah, he has a critically important ministry and it's just, it's always interesting to me. I would have been curious to see the dynamics of like, on the one hand, Ahab, you know, Elijah is Ahab's bitterest enemy at other occasions. He like, he calls them before the court to like pronounce a prophecy. Um, So how, how, I mean, how does that whole prophetic ministry work is just another question. But um, Elijah, of course, is going to be considered one of the sort of the, the big characters in the new Testament yeah. where John the Baptist is presented as having like an Elijah ministry. Mm-hmm. And of course, Elijah is, as the theological term is translated, he never dies. Mm-hmm. He goes directly to heaven on a chariot. And, you know, he obviously had an exceptional life and lived according to God's ways over and above you know, other characters in scripture, apparently. Well, and at the dark time, I think that's a fascinating thing. We have Ahab and Jezebel just bent on doing evil, and it's in the middle of them that this exceptionally holy, faithful man lives. And maybe that's one reason mm-hmm. he's translated, not only because of his connection to God, but because of God saying, listen, I love people who love right. And he's mm. just really doubling down on that at a time where Israel is just running from him at full speed. Um mm-hmm. And this, uh, so let's see, because we move into Second Kings. A couple of things I wanted to mention. One is the, um, just the, the kindness of God to the non-Israelites that's highlighted in the story of Elisha and even mm-hmm. Elijah that comes in mm-hmm. um, into the mix to keep your eyes open for. And Second Kings, there's Joash, great story. But I just mm-hmm. want to pause as we look, you know, wrap up today's podcast with uh, some reflection on the downfall of Israel. And you'll find mm-hmm. that in, in 2 Kings 17, they fall to Shalmaneser, king of Assyria during the reign of Hosea. Um, the Israelites are taken captive. They're deported and um, non-Israelites are resettled in the land. And here's what 2 Kings 17 says is the reason. This is NIV. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. There it is. The religious Mm. The, the pagan worship was morally deforming. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. Again, as you as we read the text, this becomes a reason why God was so specific about evicting the other nations from the land. Those other nations had had lost the right to occupy physical space on earth because of the moral debauchery, the moral collapse that those nations had come to. 
and then Israel follows in their footsteps and also morally collapses. They imitated, this is a quote again from 2 Kings 17, they imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And that's what we'll leave you with for this week, Sean. Do you have any final words? Uh, we'll pick up with Hezekiah no. next week. That's a good word. Good word, Nathan. Very sobering. And and also, um, you know, I think there's hope in there, right? Like, uh, you know, God wants what's best for us, and that speaks to his heart of love, and he wants to save us and protect us from that moral deformity, as you talked about. Yeah, yeah. So I guess... Um forgetting where we cover next week. We may not get to Hezekiah next week, but it's a great part to pay attention to. You'll notice that uh, when we compare First Chronicles uh, or Chronicles and Kings, that Kings focuses more on the history of Israel. Chronicles almost leaves out the history of Israel, focusing heavily mm -hmm. on the story of Judah. So we'll come back yeah. to the story of Hezekiah. We'll come back to the story of Manasseh and the fall of Judah as we swing around to the Chronicles, um, which is just around the corner. God bless you as you read. May the reading of scripture and your reflection on the text help you see more clearly the beauty of a God who loves faithfully. See, experience, live. Loveshaped.life.